Hello, 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 my fact fiends. Welcome back to yet another episode of Let's Talk About the Facts. And I am your conductor this evening, Elizabeth Fury. Yes, I did remember to introduce myself this time. And with me today is yet another good friend of mine, Blythe. Or should I say, the haunting of Blythe Manor. I forgot that was my Twitter name. I know, it's such a good pun. Like, I gotta give you that one. I was so happy when they when Netflix announced that show, because I was like, The Haunting of Bly Manor, I can finally have a pun on Twitter for a name! I got really excited, and it has literally been that since they announced the show was coming out. I don't um, see why you should change. I don't either. I, because, you know, hello everybody, I'm Blythe, and I like spooky stuff. That's, Nail- that's it. Yeah, nailed it. And that's why she's here today. But did I do a ghost story? Almost. That's next week. So today, we're going to just scare the pants off of you with some real stuff. Into it? Yeah, I'm into it. I'm, I mean, I'm really, I like spooky stuff. I like unsolved mysteries. This is the stuff I live for for some reason. I don't know why. Um. So like same. That's why I have a whole podcast for it. And I decided to make everybody else listen to me instead of telling my friends the same story over and over and over again. Surprisingly, they got very annoyed. And so today, Blythe is going down a journey that she partially actually already knows about. I think all of us actually know a bit about a bunch of this. A bit about a bunch. Uh, put that on a, like, Laffy Taffy, see if anyone can pull that off. So we're going to talk about, basically, Milk Carton, Milk Carton Kids. Not the band, which I feel like that name is really distasteful, but okay. Is that a band? It's a band. It's a little weird. I mean, I guess, like... The Sex Pistols are a thing, so I, I that's, mean... That's not weird, though. Like, Milk Carton Kids was a missing child program, and the Sex Pistols is just, you know, putting sex in front of a device of death. Yeah, I don't know if that's... I mean, I guess it's not as insensitive, that's true, but it's still, like... I say this as a punk rock fan, like, I'm 100% making fun of a band I like, but the this name is a Sex folk Pistols band, is though. ridiculous. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. But Milk Carton Kids is apparently a folk band. Oh, wow. Oh, I actually, wait, no, I think I know who they are. You know, I feel like I I'm heard impressed. them because edgy teenagers were like, I listen to the Milk Carton Kids. And I don't Tegan know them. and Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to laugh, but I do. Um, so we're going to talk about basically at the beginning of this is how Milk Carton Kids became a thing. What, you know, even is a Milk Carton Kid? And how the fallout happened. And should we even have an alternative? So, starting from the beginning. So during the late 1970s and 80s in the United States, a time that was blitheless and Elizabethless, missing children really just started to be a hot topic. Not a, not a clothing store, but like, you know big business media and among these were two of the disappearances that we are going to talk about 
one that we found out was actually a murder. The disappearance of Aton Pats in 1979, and then the kidnapping and murder of Adam Walsh in 1981. So these stories basically developed into a type of moral panic, and we call it stranger danger. And thanks to Adam Walsh's father, John Walsh, we have, there have been good pros and cons, but not because of John Walsh, but due to that moral panic. But John Walsh has done an incredible job of helping with not only finding missing children, but catching some of America's most wanted criminals. You may know of one of his shows, America's Most Wanted. I was a dedicated fan. (laughs) It has recently come back. Sorry, I just did not realize that was the same Walsh. Yeah, that that is John Walsh, the father of Adam Walsh. He also helped found the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's actually really... I'm really impressed. (laughs) Yeah, no, it is actually... I would say... John Walsh had took a situation um, that was honestly a parent's worst nightmare, and he was able to what I think what I find so inspiring by John Walsh himself is that he didn't want it to happen to anyone else if he could do something about it, and I respect that deeply. Um, he also has another sh- another show called In Pursuit with John Walsh. Uh, it's similar to America's Most Wanted, but it focuses on singular cases where uh, people have been wronged and someone is missing, and it will talk about the case. And actually, some of these cases have been solved. So in the vein of Unsolved Mysteries back in the day, um, it's a really good show. It does really rely on evidence and other cases across the country different than America's Most Wanted, but if it's a really interesting show. So check it out if you are interested in what John Walsh is doing right now. As far as I'm aware, it is still on the air. Don't remember where. I do know it's streaming because I don't have regular TV and I've seen it. So we will be moving past. So we have a moral panic and we have the birth of Stranger Danger. And if you've listened to our first episode, we covered the disappearance of Morgan Nick, which is a 25, 26, 26 year old, maybe it's 27. I can't remember. I don't ask me to do math, guys. What's Uh, the year? I work here. I just work here. I I was going to try to help you math. I was like, that's like 30 cases ago. I don't remember. Um... But I think it's like some, it's at least 26. It might be 27 years ago. Uh, maybe. Don't ask me. Um, Cut in where she said it earlier. And nope. Just sounds I'm just going to, I'm going to let my folly say it, stay. Watch it be like 20. <laughs> it was a number of years ago. And the Arkansas State Police has like reinvigorated this case now. And I'm like, oh, okay. You're going to start looking for it now? Like, I don't know. It's interesting. They, like, released a a new picture that I've actually never seen, which is 
bananas because I've been on top of this case since, you know, it happened. But all right. Cool. And it can't have been 25 years, can it? I don't know. Okay, I'm sorry. I got to let that go. And we talked about stranger danger and actual percentages regarding how many children per year are abducted by true strangers. And the conclusion is it is less than 1%. Most child abductions are committed by somebody who is in the known circle of a child. So, um, a lot of times, uh, custodial interference, for example, a parent who is, uh, a divorced parent who is not the, uh, one with custody, uh, somebody like an uncle, an aunt, I know it's horrifying to hear, but that is most likely where to start looking when a child goes missing. That's not to say that strangers aren't culpable. It's just unlikely initially. But with the situations of Adam Walsh and Aton Pats, it's a very hard story to swallow. Um, so in September of 1984, Anderson, Erickson, Derry, in Des Moines, Iowa, they basically got together, this company, and were like, you know what, these kids, as John Mulaney would say, they're not just blown off steam. We probably should try to find them. And they didn't necessarily feel like there was a legitimate way to find kids. Um, so there's two boys in Iowa that had gone missing. Johnny Gosh, which is a case that we actually plan on covering soon along with Eugene Martin and they went missing while delivering newspapers for the Des Moines Register and so in a milk carton advertising program for missing children um, they printed the faces of children on milk cartons with the style of have you seen me and a phone number to call a similar advertising program would be launched in Chicago, Illinois, and it was supported by the police. Um, and then California would also start doing one with support from their government. In December of 1984, January 1985, um, there was a nonprofit, National Child Safety Council, that began a nationwide program called Missing Children Milk Carton Program. So in the United States, they would start putting photos of missing children on the milk cartons. So by March of 1985, so that's three months into this program, 700 of the 1,600 independent dairies in the U.S. had adopted the practice of publishing photos of missing children. So Aton Pats was one of the first of the missing children and perhaps the most famous on this strategy. And we'll talk about him in depth in his case. Um Basically, the ta like the tactic and the idea was they would print his photo on milk cartons across the country so that people who would purchase it at, you know, whatever retailer would look for this kid. And, you know, it's 1985. 
you're not going to have internet. You're not going to have smartphones or anything like that. And sometimes I think even myself who grew up without that, um, I didn't have like smartphones. I didn't have one in college when I first went off to college. Um, I definitely, I had an idiot phone. But you really didn't have a smartphone by the time of college? No, I I started college in 2010. I mean, I was a year after you when I had a smartphone. I was broke. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just, sorry. I also, I'm, my parents are younger than the average parent. My parents are boomers. Yeah. Oh, my parents are Gen X. (laughs) Mine are straight up boomers. uh, yeah, they were like, we like technology, so we're going to get you your smart. So I had a smartphone in high school, cause, so I was a lucky child, because my parents were like, nah, we like technology, and we want you to have decent technology most of the time anyways, but that's just, I'm just like, 2010 is a time to have a smartphone. Not if you're broke! I don't know. I think you're just making excuses now. I had no dollars. Are My job? Sure? Yes. <laughs> oh no, I remember. Trust me. I remember. She, she had no dollars. I had a phone that had a duct tape to the back of it so it held the battery in and a SpongeBob sticker. Was it a Nokia? Nope. It was a Motorola kind of like a Blackberry. Loved that thing, don't get me wrong. But cuz I was a fast typewriter, right? full it had like a full key board and stuff yeah i miss i miss i do actually miss mechanical keyboards oh like, i, I love feel like them this so is much. like a weird a weird yeah. thing i have but no I, miss I, them. I have a mechanical keyboard for like my my work like it's amazing um there no it sounds like uh one of i used to work for this company and the cto said it's like rainfall it's so delightful and i was like it reminds me of my third grade computer lab like i yes! love it that's what I think of. I think of like being in sixth grade and learning how to type on these like clunky computers. And it was just like, I felt so official if I heard that click clack. I know. You know what? When I was a kid, I'm sorry to derail this, but when I was a kid, you know what I was really looking forward to? Filing what? things, like important things. Having I... things that were important to file. I am actually really disappointed in my life because. I'm really organized with my computer files and stuff, but I don't have any, like, I have no filing cabinet. I have no organization of my Thank life, you! And I'm disappointed. I was really excited for, like, file folders, and yeah, I don't have that. I want to like, color coordinate. I want green to be my, my science and my math. <laughs> I think I was, I was still a, I was still one of those kids. Even though, like, we are barely apart. Like, we were in high school together. We, I still had that kind of school. Oh, yeah, I, uh, same. I didn't have, like, I had my smartphone, but, like, so something I've been thinking about, you're talking about Stranger Danger, and I'm thinking about how we grew up in such a world. Oh, Stranger Danger. Heck yeah. yeah. Well, we grew up in this world where online friending and stuff was starting to become a thing, but it wasn't quite a thing yet, and I feel like oh yeah, had such a, like, paranoid upbringing i don't i don't remember a time in my life when i could just like walk up to a plane gate like that's not a thing i've always had to go through security to get to a plane Um, oh yeah no because uh 2001 yeah yeah 
because of 2001 a space odyssey (laughs) (laughs) fucking hal Uh, (laughs) like in stranger danger thinking about these kids going missing and i actually have a personal story because i do have a family member of mine that was kidnapped by their father um Mm. i have a very fun life and by fun i mean tragic um yeah (laughs) but i i think about this stuff and how it meant we grew up with be afraid of everyone you meet. There was no, mm-hmm. like, there was no trust people. There was no, people are inherently good. It was, if, if you meet someone on the internet, they're lying to you. If you meet someone in yes. a car that you don't know, they're lying to you. If you meet someone at a bar, they're going to murder you. Like, And I think it's double for women, especially, oh, yeah. because it was all victim blaming. And, like, if you meet someone in a bar they're gonna murder you because you're a woman not because they're a murderer but shouldn't have been a woman that day and you're just like what do i do but i think we accidentally derailed however do not let me end this episode i want to hear that story that you have to share (laughs) um i do have a story i want to hop back into the end of like you know milk carton um so Aton Pats, of course, by far was the most famous of the milk carton kids. Like, he was everywhere. And that was their way of basically encouraging people to look for missing children. That was... And honestly, it's an interesting tactic because I believe it was spawned from the idea that dairy farmers were like, okay, we cannot find our babies. They're going missing. What do we do? So... Johnny Gosh, Eugene Martin, and Eton Pats, Aton, sorry, Aton Pats, they have never been found. There was one success case, and it was a young girl named Bonnie Loman, and she was uh, seven years old, and her mother and stepfather had abducted her from her father who had, like, had custody when she was three. So... The girl's neighbors recognized her on the milk carton. But the way that I've heard the story is she actually recognized herself on the milk carton, wanted to purchase it, so the stepfather let her purchase it. She cut the picture out, and then the neighbors found the picture in, like, her bedroom when they were over playing, because, like, she recognized herself, and that's how they got caught. Bananas, right? That is wild. (laughs) I've never heard that before. Yeah, Bonnie Loman. um, I'm only saying her name because it's printed. Like, it's been printed and published and all of that. Otherwise, I wouldn't have named her. Um, So, it obviously, the practice began to fade by the end of the 80s and totally became obsolete when Amber Alert was put in in 1996. So... The Amber Alert was put in after the disappearance and murder of Amber Hagerman, yet again unsolved. And Amber Alert uses technology, including notifications to mobile phones, to give up-to-date information about potential child abductions or crises. Um, So, like, even though it was abandoned, and of course paper cartons were replaced by plastic jugs there has still been a bit of a positive to it but um randomly there has been a recent appearance of 
one of the faces on a milk carton. Um, 16-year-old Molly Bish disappeared from a lifeguarding job in Massachusetts in 2000. Her parents were active um, on raising awareness, and then she was unfortunately found three years later about five miles away from where she disappeared. That's so, so sad. Truly. Truly. Mm-hmm. I'm also like thinking about how I understand the importance of Amber Alerts, but every time I get one, it's the one thing that makes my phone not silent. And it scares me. True. However, it does every it to time. everybody. So, you know, it's not like embarrassing. No. Yeah, it's true. When you're in a work meeting, it has happened to me in a work meeting where everyone's phone went off at the same time. And it I- was terrifying. Yeah, I'll crap my pants. It's fine. <laughs> That's I how you get to leave the for- meeting. <laughs> but no, and like, it's kind of like, okay, I understand I have this information, but I can't run to the window and do something about it, you know? Yeah, that's always been my, like, kind of, I I appreciate that we have this system. I think it's valuable. I don't quite understand how uh, yeah. it works because I can't usually act on it. I get it. I get them at the weirdest times and I'm like, I'm not going to go walking around at midnight in my yeah. neighborhood as a woman alone to go find this. Like, that's not a thing I'm going to do because then I'm going to be the next one. Yeah. However, if you're already outside when that goes off and you're right there when the car is speeding off, that's, I think, the intent, if you will. Yeah. I, I understand the value of it. I just, much like the milk cartons kids. Um, yeah. It. It's a it's a system we need. It's not perfect. I think there's got to be something better that we can do. Correct. And I love how I said correct, not right. Um, <laughs> that was unintentional. However, my first point was going to be the emotional distress that Milk Carton Kids did um, cause. So Benjamin Spock, who was a pediatrician, would testify. Yeah. No, testify. Sorry. He published a book. Wrong. Wrong person. Uh, (laughs) uh, that the cartons terrified small children at the breakfast table because it would give them the implication too that they might be abducted however i have to say at this time there was no safety in this world they left their doors unlocked the amount of i just can't with like the bull that was happening in these communities so, like, I'm not actually mad about it, but at the same time, like, I get where he's coming from. Well, and that's kind of what I was talking about, is how I feel like I grew up really afraid of things because this has always been a fact of my life. I feel like I've always been very anxious. and But when I tell the story later, it will make a little more sense, too, to my fear. But um, I, I, I always felt very, very, very anxious. So I can kind of relate to where these kids are coming from. Oh, 100%. Like, I always thought I was going to get abducted. Like, I did. I definitely did, too. Um, My, like, with JonBenet Ramsey and Morgan Nick and all of these children who were murdered and abducted around and always on, like, the front page of tabloids that were in the grocery store. And then, like, Stranger Danger people who would come to school at assemblies to tell us about like how to be safe around strangers. So I was just like ready. I was like, I'm not going to die. Cause I'm going to kill them first. Like I'm not, I'm either dying or we both dying. Like it's, 
It's about to get wild. Like, there ain't no Jesus in this moment. And so I definitely get where you're coming from, is what I'm saying. I also have always had that anxiety, and I don't think it's ever gone away. Um, and in, in addition to the emotional distress, it was overstating the risk because it brought too much attention to the idea of stranger danger because most abducted children pictured on the milk cartons were actually taken by non-custodial divorced parents, not a stranger. Um, but are you familiar with the stand-up comedian Eddie Griffin? He, I don't, not super familiar with the work, but I know the name. He was, uh, he played Eddie Sherman in the sitcom Malcolm and Eddie, and that was from, like, a 2002, um, oh, I actually don't know when that ran, but in the 2002 comedy film Undercover Brother, he was in that, and then he was in Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo, those kind of things. If that rings any bells, that's Eddie Griffin. He performed a white kids on milk cartons routine. And basically called out the fact that it was racially biased and correct. So in 1997, while making it 15% of the U.S. child population, black non-Hispanic children were 42% of all non-family abductions. Hispanic children, while making up 16% of the population, were 23% of non-family abductions. So white children at 65% of the population were only 35% of non-family abductions. So what you're looking at, you're like, oh, but 23% is less than 35. Right, but look at a ratio. You've got 65% making up 35%, while 16% makes up 23 and 15 makes up 42. Not good. Not good at all. So Natalie Wilson, who is the co-founder of the Black and Missing Foundation, would tell Essence Magazine in 2014, in the field, I've seen a majority of black missing children classified as runaways who don't get Amber Alerts. Yeah, I would call that racially biased. And... We don't even include Asian American children in this. I didn't have any data for that. And I can't go back to 1997 and get it. I'm gonna imagine it's bad. I think it's fairly low comparatively. Um, but I, mean, I can only imagine. Not having the statistic for it and not having accurate statistics for it doesn't... doesn't bode well no it doesn't bode well at all uh, it's either unreported or it's unreported mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I, w- I do think that it's probably lower than the like 15 to 42 you know what I'm saying but at the same time, it's not good. The fact that you didn't even include any Asian American children. They lived here in the 90s. Asian Americans have been here for a very long time. A very long time. 
Like, they exist. They deserve statistics. Um, there's also no data to track the success in milk carton kids because it's hard to say how successful it was. Nobody had kept any hard verifiable numbers on the program. And so if it was just to raise the level of awareness, it didn't bring tips or leads or anything that was actually able to use. Um, however, some say, and I believe Adam Garfinkel was the person to say, and Adam Garfinkel, just so you're aware, is a historian and political scientist, and he was the, or sorry, is, is the founding editor of the American Interest. Um, he has suggested that it was really financially motivating after the initial um, companies that did it for no profit. So for many years, companies got a public service tax break by putting pictures of missing children on the milk cartons. So, yeah, that's milk carton kids for you. It didn't really work except for Bonnie Loman. So we have said before that if it's worth bringing home one child, then it's worth doing. And so I can say I think it was worth doing because in the end... These kids didn't get forgotten, but I think what we should learn from this is that, first, the racial bias towards white children. And did we learn it? No. Can we still take the opportunity to learn it? Yes. Yes, we can. Um, we have yet to, but, you know. So, that being said... Should I ask any questions on milk carton kids since we diverted so often? <laughs> uh, I mean, I understand what, like, I understand the program. I understand what they're for. And I understand, I had actually heard the, uh, the racial biases behind them. Uh, it's just bananas. It is bananas. And it, I know, I look a lot of this stuff up because I am Latinx. And like I said, a family member of mine was abducted. Mm. Uh, that family member is Latinx. Like, there's kind of a I, I've kind of always been fascinated by this stuff mm -hmm. uh, especially growing up in Orlando around Casey Anthony and uh, I feel like it's hard to avoid and it's always been kind of hard to avoid in my life mm -hmm. so I kind of was like well I'm just gonna do a bunch of research on it now especially because this falls right into my I like crime and cases and if I was a smarter person and didn't work in entertainment, I probably could have gone into, like, forensics or something. <laughs> I mean, I feel that deeply as someone who went into entertainment and then made a podcast uh, about crime <laughs> and unsolved mysteries. I mean, what do they say? Like, it's always going to be some random women with a crime podcast who are going to solve this case better than the cops. So... You know, I've noticed that with it so many cases that I cover it's just it always comes down to like who cared the most and I think I am gonna start I gotta I gotta hand it to some of the cold case detectives that have come in 20 years later and just really been like well this first investigation fucking sucked and I love those cases. I'm sorry. I do. Because it, it gives you hope that actually the information was there. You know? But yeah. on a side note, in 1995, in 1995, not on it, not on top of it, but in it, 1995, 
there was a film release called The Face on the Milk Carton. And it was based on Caroline B. Cooney's 1990 novel of the same name. And the only person that really people were, like recognize are Edward Herman from like Gilmore Girls. Plays. Wait, really? Yeah, he was in it. And then <laughs> Sharon Lawrence, who gives the best scream in the world on Criminal Minds. It's amazing. Um, also, she's in like NYPD Blue or something like that. Yes. NYPD Blue. I was like, not Hill Street Blues, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> NYPD Blue. But also, she did that amazing scream on Criminal Minds. And honestly, where's her daytime Emmy? Um, so basically, what they did is took the premise of the Milk Carton Kids. And this 16-year-old girl is, like, living with her great parents and a best friend. And then she finds out she's a missing child and recognizes herself on a milk carton and like goes on this adventure and let me tell you like she finds her real family and everything and it is bananas but also I couldn't find it streaming but watched the face on the milk carton it's kind of a Hallmark movie but it's not is it completely fiction? yeah totally Okay. I told you there's only one child that was found that's fair. But I wasn't sure. I was like, wait, isn't this based on the story that you were talking about earlier? Oh, but- no, 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 no. Maybe she took some creative liberties with it, but no, this girl's like 16. Okay. Yeah. That's fair. I mean, that's and these fair. are total like- strangers that have abducted her. Wow. I know. In Hollywood. But it was a very, very dramatic movie. I want to say <laughs> it did not hit the theaters. I'm going to, I don't think so. No, now that you talk, and I'm like, now that you talk about it, I'm like, I feel like I knew this because I like Edward Herman. Who doesn't? Uh, and I loved him on Gilmore Girls. Yeah, he's I'm great. Girl. And there's also Kelly Martin, if people know her from Life Goes On, or a pup named Scooby-Doo. Um, or she was in Christy, the Christian drama. I remember that one. What? Yep. It's a thing. Anyway. I believe it because I have Christian family who watches some weird stuff. But it's like this. She's like a teacher who goes into like the hills to teach children. It's it's bananas. Wow. I just recognized your face and I was like, I remember watching this, but I think I've blacked out the story from the rest of my memory. (laughs) I, I don't blame you. So I don't blame you. To stroll backwards, we're going to talk about Adam Walsh and Aton Pats. And to go chronologically, we're going to talk about Aton Pats first. So 1979. I want you to stroll back to 1979, May 25th. It's probably hot in New York City. It's probably gross. And um, Aton Pats is six years old. He lives in Manhattan. He has two parents, Julie and Stanley Pats, and two siblings, Ari, who is two, and Shira, who is eight. He is a first grade student at Independence Plaza School, and he is on his way to a school bus stop in the Soho neighborhood of Lower Manhattan. 
unfortunately, that walk is two blocks from where he lives. Somewhere between the two block walk, he does not make it. And he is never seen again. So, Aton does not return home from school. And hours later, he was actually confirmed to never have made it to class. So, the Pats call the police because school apparently did not call them and say, Hey, yo son ain't here. Um, like schools do now. Yeah. No. Yeah. (laughs) So, the police arrive at 5.30 p.m. So, I should mention that the six-year-old did walk to school alone. You look, yeah, who does that? 1979. Man, what is it like to have, like... Freedom? Not parent. Yeah, freedom and not super paranoid parents that you're going to go missing. You know, it's actually bananas to me because I used to take the bus to school, but my, my father would walk me to the bus stop and stand with me. I had zero problems with this because my dad rocked. And so I'd be chilling with him and, like, this other like dude who would ride the bus i think he was in like sixth grade he was also really creepy and i didn't like him and he wore like those really baggy cargo shorts that were popular in the 90s you know which ones i'm talking about yes yeah they kind of look like capris on older women uh-huh yeah they're so ugly yeah please don't come back and i would just hang out with my dad till the bus came and i'd be like bye dad and he's like salute and he would go off to work and now i realize why he did that every day you know what i mean oh yeah no so i started riding the bus in sixth grade after uh we we moved and i went to middle school and it would only be after school they would drive me they would make sure i got to school in the morning but after school i would have to take the bus because no one would be off work so That was the first time I got a cell phone. The the main reason I got a cell phone when I was 11 years old was so that I could call them the second I got off the bus and was walking from the bus stop to my house. Mm -hmm. And then for like after a little while, I made some friends and I made a friend in the neighborhood. So I would just go to her house instead. But for a long time, it was like I would pull out my little Nokia flip phone and be like, yep, I'm walking home now and I'm going to go home and a cat is following me because, you know cats cats followed me home all the time when i was a kid um but like i i said that as a joke but it's true it it actually happened um cats love me but i i I now know i'm like oh you got me the cell phone you bought me an expensive thing that just because you want to make sure i don't go disappeared don't go disappeared oh yeah no i I only rode the bus for a few years before I rode to school with my dad every day. Um, And, like, I get it, though, because, like, you see a bunch of kids standing there. It's... And, like, it was very soon after Morgan Nick's disappearance. And she disappeared from the middle of um, a parking lot after just having been with her friends. Like, she stopped to take sand out of her shoes and then was gone. And, like, those kind of things terrify parents, you know? Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Like, I understand. Especially, once again. So, like, when I got to middle school, another concern was we were going to live near the person who abducted my family member. 
And so my parents like sat me down when I was 11 and was basically like, we're going to live near this dude now. Um, don't go with anyone who has the same last name as us and says that they're your, your family member. Like, just, just don't. Like, that was, like, a concern when yeah. I got to when I got to middle school. Because we originally... We lived in a separate county before. But we had moved. We bought a... Like, my parents bought a house. Um, and they were like, so this is a thing. Also, you have a, you have a bunch of secret family members we haven't told you about. <laughs> um, and, like, like I kind of knew some of the details. I knew the story. But I didn't know, like, everything. And so they basically were like, you can't get in a car with them. If you meet them, like, be really careful. Like... They went through, like, all these rules with me. And thankfully, uh, nothing ever happened. Mm-hmm. And I never met the person. I did meet some of the other family members after that person died. Mm-hmm. But we waited till he died. Of course. Because of this, this history. So, like, my parents... I understood why my parents were so freaked out about the idea of me walking home alone at all when we lived... 20 minutes away from someone who had no issues kidnapping children before. Absolutely. And I mean, there's registries for that, but also those are misused. And yeah, I don't know if he ever got registered or anything because it happened in the seventies or a seventies in the seventies. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, you know, I don't know if he ever like, got registered or caught or like i know a private investigator went after him but i don't know if any like i don't know if the police ever went after him yeah or anything like i don't know if like i don't know the details there i just know a private investigator found them and then by that point it was too late the kid was kind of like no this is, this is my dad it's fine it was like no it's not your dad literally kidnapped you kidnapped you and moved you around the country for years so your mom couldn't find you yeah it's not fine it's custodial Both. interference that's what half of these milk carton kids were on there for yep so- like that's what happened to him so it's kind of like so i understood why my parents were so concerned absolutely for me. and it's better to be safe in that situation then sorry yep and i yep. hate that phrase but however it is very useful and it's very true in the end of the 70s right now we are learning that as a society how vulnerable children really are yep. um because we're thinking nobody would ever hurt a child we think Mothers wouldn't hurt their children. And now if a child comes up missing, who's the first person we look at? The mother. So with Aton Pats, to relate all of this to Aton, the teacher like had noticed his absence but didn't report it. And the police arrived at 5 p.m. And... The detectives considered the Patses to be possible suspects, and that's legitimate because that's what you would do now. So that's forward thinking for these detectives. But it was actually quickly determined they had no involvement other than not walking their child to the bus stop. Um, but not uncommon. Again, this is 1979, and we're looking at this with 2021 vision. So they began an intense search that evening, 
But what we know is that the first few hours of a child missing, like, those first few hours are so critical. Um, using nearly 100 police hour, or police officers and a team of bloodhounds, they searched for weeks. Neighbors and police canvassed the city. They put up missing child posters with Aton's picture. Very few leads, and they led to nowhere. So Aton's father, Stanley... He was actually a professional photographer, and he had a collection of photographs he had taken of Aton, and his photos were printed on countless posters. They actually were projected on screens in Times Square. Um, so, in 1985, this is six years later, there was a U.S. Uh, attorney. His name was Stuart R. Grabois. I'm going to spell that for you. G-R-A-B-O-I-S. Grabois. If he says Grabois, I am going to just scream. Because I don't know. So we're going to go with Grabois. It, it, is, it, it was, yeah. It's Bois. That's what it's I, I know. But you know. Somebody related to him is going to tweet me and be like, excuse me. Oh, I mean, I'm just coming at it from... Like, correct six spelling. Six years. Well, also, six years of French, people. That Same. I was like... <laughs> that's what I'm saying. If you say Grabois, I'm sorry, you're wrong. Um, so he receives the case. He actually identifies a man named Jose Antonio Ramos, who was a convicted child sexual abuser, and also had been a friend of Aton's former babysitter, as the primary suspect. So back in 82, multiple boys had accused Ramos of trying to lure them into a drain pipe area. And that's where Ramos was living. Um, so police did search that uh, pipe. They found photographs of Ramos, uh, but also of young boys, one who resembled Aton. Uh, so Grabois and eventually found out Ramos had been in custody in Pennsylvania in connection with unrelated child molestation case. And in 1990, Grabois was uh, deputized as a deputy state attorney general in Pennsylvania so he could assist in prosecuting the case against Ramos for those children and obtain further information about Aton's case. Um, so when Grabois first questioned Ramos, he said that on the day Aton disappeared, he had taken a young boy back to his apartment and that he was 90% sure that it was Aton. Um, he never used Aton's name and he compl and he claimed that he put the boy on the subway. I agree with the police sirens in the background. Just. <laughs> I'm like, I just had a helicopter flying overhead. I, I'm now looking up. I'm also now slightly looking up things as you're talking about it. Because I'm like, oh, okay. I get too curious. I'm, I'm a curious man. <laughs> it's okay. Um, our listeners are probably like, excuse me, I'm driving. I can't do that. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, I just 
the name Ramos or, or Ramos, however he says it, it was just interesting. Right. I find this, I just find this one interesting because in the 80s, Eitan is put on the first, one of the first children put on the milk cartons, right? And in the following yeah. decades, the case is just huge. It's He's the first non-celebrity child to hit national spotlight. And there's just this series of fake confessions and individuals showing up at the at the Pat's house pretending to be Aton coming home. And for a long time, they really did suspect Jose Ramos of uh, abducting Aton. And they were never able to um, confirm his guilt. So in the year 2000, we were alive. Authorities did declare Aton legally dead. And the case goes cold. However, in 2010, uh, Aton's case is reopened because his body has never been found. Um, they reopen the case. Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. officially reopened it on the anniversary of his death, which is May 25th, 2010. By the way, I did not mention to you that Ronald Reagan... May God burn his soul. Did declare May 25th to be National Missing Child Day. I don't know if you knew that. Um, I did not. That's my friend's birthday. Well, you know, it was the day Aton went dis- like missing and therefore National Missing Child Day. They really went for it. I mean, there's some other th- I was like, there's a couple things that, uh, as much as I don't like Reagan, uh, there's a couple things he did that were... Not terrible. He. This yeah, is one of them. You know. Yeah. The, this. I'm saying like two things. I was like. Two things. There was this like. Because he also. His, the assassination attempt on him did help get better gun laws. It's, I can't talk about that on this podcast because everything I have to say is all jokes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> You know, that's fair. No, but that. Okay. So we have found two things that he did. And yeah, so we're going to leave it at two and I'm going to continue this because I am going to get in trouble otherwise. So I understand. We're going to go to 2012. The Pat's family home is excavated in the search for new clues. Guess what? They got nothing. But there was a new wave of interest in the case and new tips from the public. One of which led to the identity, potentially, of Aton's abductor, a man named Pedro Hernandez. So police did learn that Pedro Hernandez had been an 18-year-old worker at a bodega near Aton's bus stop. And that in 1982, he admitted in an open church confessional he killed him. What? what? Sorry, I went silent because I was like, what the heck? I know. Uh, I was like, what the H-E double hockey sticks is going on here? I am now thinking that this case did nothing for the Hispanic community. Or, like, there's a lot of... There's a lot of stuff going on here. There's a lot of stuff going on here, and I have many thoughts about all of it. That's why I started looking up... I'm like, I hear the last name Ramos, because I have 
family in New York with the last name Ramos. And I was like, well, now I'm going to go look up this dude and see if he's a white dude or not. You never know. <laughs> I just, I had to look because my family's not white. So I was like, well, now I need to know if this Ramos dude uh, is white or not, basically. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. But this he's is scary the looking. thing is that Pedro's family was aware and had begun discussing it again when news of the excavation came out. Police interrogated him, and he confessed to luring Eitan away from the bus stop and into the bodega before strangling him. Hernandez said that he put Eitan's box, er, wait, body in a box and left it outside in a trash pile a couple blocks away. So, 2015. This is where it's bonkers, because I didn't realize, I didn't know this part until I was doing this research with Skyler. Skyler, shout out to our research assistant and associate producer. Woo! Woo! Um, Hernandez was tried for the murder of Eitan Pats. It ended in a mistrial because one juror was not convinced of Hernandez's guilt due to his possible mental illness and fears that the police may have coerced Hernandez into a false confession. I can't be upset with that guy. I can't. I mean, yeah, I can't, like, the, the whole thing, like, with what you were saying with Ramos, too, like, I can't be upset with anyone trying to be like, maybe this isn't real because of, like, it, yeah, it's so easy to get people to confess falsely. Look up the Reykjavik confessions, y'all. Oh, absolutely. So the man in question, that juror, his name is Adam Sirwa. Uh, um, sorry, guys. Did not think this out. Thought that was going to be easy. Was not. S-I-R-O-I-S. He is a global healthcare and management consultant. And he gave interviews to CNN and wrote a CNN op-ed outlining his decision in 2017, which very, very enlightening. So part of his decision was based on a number of factors, including the fact that Hernandez's low IQ of 70, um, even though IQ is useless, it does serve some sort of person like purpose but if he's tested in at 70 that does say something um he was uh diagnosed with personality disorder limited emotional range in the belief he had telepathic powers and seeing visions hernandez had poor memory and recollection of facts the police questioned hernandez alone for seven hours with no video at all and one of the witnesses against Hernandez was an ex-wife and three older men in Hernandez's church who say they heard his confession despite none of their stories matching each other and the stories changing over time. So according to the Hernandez family, Pedro's mental illness symptoms didn't take root until he was 18. Um, that's, I mean, that's common. I'm thinking like... Yeah. Also, we're talking about we, this kid was all over the news, was everywhere, uh, reached a level of notoriety that only famous kids usually got. Like, that makes you pretty easy. Yes. Easily suggestible. Also, Hernandez has not committed a violent crime before or after May 25th, 1979. So, wow. 
After the 2015 trial, the prosecutor told jurors in the deliberation room after the trial that in 1979, New York City's Soho neighborhood had hundreds of pedophiles. However, in court, the prosecutor made the case that Soho was a much safer place where children could play in the street. In total, there were three mistrials. In 2017, Hernandez is retried again and found guilty. His sentence was 25 to life in federal prison, and he is currently residing there now. But do we think he did it? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess we can't know, and we can't know. We can't know. We can't know. So we're going to move over now. So we have Aton Pats here, and I'm about to blow your mind now. Seven hours? Yeah. I think there should be a limit to how long you... Yeah, no, I'm gonna... I'm mad at cops for doing that. You can't interview someone for seven hours. You're gonna you're gonna hear what you want eventually. I can't Zoom call for that long. No, oh my god. I have, and it's exhausting. Like... I don't want to deal with people that long. I'll just tell you whatever you want to get off that call. Yup. <laughs> like, and that's exactly what's happening there. I will... Yeah, here. Uh, okay, fine. I did it. Let me out. Yep. Oh, shit. Now I'm in jail. So we're going to skip, skip, skadoodly do over to 1981. And we're going to talk about Adam Walsh. And I believe you're familiar with Code Adam. Uh, Code Adam is if a child has gone missing in a mall, department store, big box store, basically any store. The doors are immediately locked. And no one is allowed in or out until the child is located. Um, Code Adam is named after Adam Walsh, and you're about to find out why. And as a Floridian, I will let you know that this happened in Hollywood, Florida. <laughs> of course. Sorry. Sorry. I don't mean to laugh. That's not something. It's not just a reason like Hollywood, Hollywood, Florida is yep. trash. It is literal trash i think they have what they have a hard rock casino there i think it was better back in the 70s uh no but it's it's always so they do have a fun fact junction. that area is always it's always been high crime but there is a uh there is a hard rock casino and that casino is owned by the seminal tribe and that casino allowed the Seminole tribe to get enough money to buy Hard Rock, the company. So that is one good thing about Hollywood, Florida. Wait, they own, they own Hard Rock? Yeah. Uh, when I worked there, we were anyone who was a member of the Seminole tribe was allowed to get like a 15% discount or something. If, as long as you could show that you were a member, you could get it because they owned the they owned. They own a portion of it. There's two separate companies, but they own one of them. Dear Seminole so, yeah. listeners, get Fun facts. that discount. This is called, the. this is about facts. Yeah. So there's a Let's fact. Let's talk about these facts. And we just <laughs> did. So Adam Walsh, Adam John Walsh, was an American young boy, as was Aton Pants. And he was at the Hollywood Mall in Hollywood, Florida, uh, with his mother on July 27th, 1981. His mother, I want to say her name is Rev, but it could be Reve. So we're going to say Reve, 
because now I'm going to look it up. It's R-E-V-E accent ague. Uh, oh, then probably Reve. Yeah, we're going to go with that. Uh, you know, the amount of times that I have, like, watched and listened to this, I've never heard her name pronounced. Maybe everyone's too afraid. I think so. <laughs> I just went in. Balls deep. Let's do it. Let's do it. I can, I can just imagine all the people, like, panicking, like, what is it? I don't know. I mean, come on. Mrs. We're Americans. Walsh. Like, Americans don't learn languages. We don't learn shit. We don't yeah, learn no, from our mistakes. It's definitely Rave. It looks probably French. Maybe Spanish. Maybe. Uh, well, she took him shopping with her at the Hollywood Mall in Hollywood, Florida in 1981. And they went to Sears and entered through the north entrance. This is going to be important. So, Reve wanted to go talk about a lamp that was on sale. And you remember how lamps were back in the day? They were awesome. Not like lamps we have now. Like, they were an investment piece. Like, check out this lamp I have. And It's because TV wasn't as interesting yet. Got it now, right? It was like, Golden Girls, and then let's talk about my lamp! Um, and then she actually left Adam at a kiosk where the Atari 2600 video games were. And there's several other boys there taking turns playing, right? Yeah. I think I'd still do that, but they don't really do that anymore. They used to, but, like, I used to play GameCube and Walmart with my brother, you know? Yeah. My parents would, not in a mall, because malls are massive, well, but, like, in a small store. They were like in, in, Sears. A, in a store. They were in the same. They were in the same store. Like, I think she was only two miles over. Oh, Jesus Christ. Right. So she finishes her lamp business and she goes to find Adam over at her at the Atari. Right. Yeah. Like, that's probably the only reason Adam even wanted to go, you know? Oh, I I mean, I'm all for it. Like, let me play video games. Like, I totally I'm on this kid's side. Yeah, I'm with him. And... The, she finds out that Adam and the other boys have disappeared. The store manager tells her that there was a, quote, scuffle. A little shibbly-do. A scuffle? Yep. It broke out over whose turn it was at the kiosk. And the security guard, rather than being the adult in the situation and helping out, kind of like, you know, problem solve, he demanded that they all leave the store. He did not bother... To find where the parents were. The security guard asked the older boys if their parents were there. They said no. And uh, didn't even bother to look at this six-year-old and be like, hey, where are your parents? And he could be like, lamps. I'm sorry. Like, what the fuck? Thank you. Can I curse? Am I allowed to curse? I'm cursing. <laughs> okay. What the fuck? this guy's fault you are a grown-ass adult you are a security guard this is literally the kind of thing you are paid to do something about and you're just like i'm gonna kick a bunch of kids out of the store and one of them doesn't there's no way that six-year-old looked old enough to be able to handle things on his own no you look that's no i don't see why he couldn't just like say boys boys let's do it this way one two three four five that's your turn numbers. Chill it out. Yeah, like, 
be a goddamn grown-up and help the kids figure it out. That's your fucking place in life when there's children around. But, like, no, That's in 1981, just... he had he was too busy being all, like, my dick's hanging out. Did he have a mustache? Because I feel like he was probably like, I'm oh, so definitely. important with my mustache. I'm going to say he had a toothbrush, toothbrush mustache. No, it was probably some, like, pimply teenager. Uh, just, like... Walk up, yeah. Do like some. walk up and tell them their turnover. That's all you got to fucking do. Just oh like my you know, be a bro. I've never like I I have taken care of many children, and I've been there for scuffles and the like exact scuffles like this, like where hair has been involved, and all you have to do is say, "Hey, let me bring order to this disorder," and you guys can keep doing what you're doing. All right, and we can all yep. be chill pills. It's cool. And most kids, like, someone will be upset that they're last, but, like, at the end of the day, most kids will accept that you have given them order. Yeah, because, like, if their parents come and this kid's five, well, okay, we'll just boot him up to three, and then, you know, the next, you know, it's fine. It's chilling. It's easy. It's so easy. And the security guard is the reason this kid is gone. I mean, I'm not throwing blame, but right now I'm upset. I'm upset. <laughs> I'm mad at this secure. I don't know this man. I just, I bet you he has lots of guilt and he should. I mean, I'd slap him. So. I would slap him. Adam. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Sorry. Adam's parents, John and Reve, later would say that Adam probably was too shy to speak to the security guard who seems like a total douche. And probably. The security guard thought he was with the other boys, which makes no sense because that's too many boys. And the security guard made him leave by the same door which the boys entered, which was the Sears West entrance. Remember, I told you they came in from the north. So they believe that after the other boys dispersed, he was left alone outside of the store at an exit that he didn't know. And let me tell you, as a grown-ass woman, and I would be upset. I can't find my car. I don't know where I am. I am holding too many bags. And my feet hurt. And I have to pee. And I just want to pee at home. I would have, yeah, I would, if I were him. And this is a six-year-old. Yeah, if I were him, I would have started crying in the store. I just would have sat down on the ground and started crying. As a six-year-old, that's what I would... I would have just sat down... No, he's outside. ...saying, I want my mom. But but this was... That's what would have happened before like, I got where are the grown-ups, though? Like, yeah, did like, nobody... Like, was nobody at the entrance looking, saying, oh, there's just a six-year-old boy there. Maybe he needs help. Unfortunately. I feel so bad for these kids. What'd you say? I said, I feel so bad for these kids. People letting them walk home... Walk to school on their own. Walk to getting kicked out of stores on their own. They're six. Six Six-year-olds don't know anything about anything. They literally have never known less. Like, their lives are, I want to play video games or whatever. Or I just, like, they don't, they have simple needs. And these adults aren't doing anything for them. So. I'm very upset. No, I know. It's, uh, this is so upsetting. So, Reve is having him page over the PSA, right? And she's looking for him throughout the store, 
and randomly runs into John's mother, Jean. Like, they both happen to be there. And so it's her mother-in-law. Yeah. And so she helps him, her search for him. Honestly, that probably was a godsend. But the PSA system can't work because Adam is outside. We don't know for how long. So after 90 minutes of searching and public address pages that don't locate him, which is too long, in my opinion, uh, the store... Why? So the security... Did the security guard not just go, I told them to leave that way, and no one just walked to that door? Nope. This, no, I just went... I feel like the security just guard just, like, was scratching his balls. I just... Hey, where's my kid? He's not here. I told them to leave this entrance. Yeah. Like, what? Or if he did, by the time... I don't, Now I'm questioning my information, sorry. By the time that he would have said that, he they went out there and he was gone. No, I believe that, but, like, the security guard should have thought to do that originally. No, yeah, yeah, definitely. But if... My information at- is is correct, sorry, that when the security guard went to go check that doorway, by the time that they knew that they were looking for a child, Adam was gone. God. Um, Freaking security guard. I know. So mad at him. So she does call the police at 1.55. So on August 10th, we're not going to talk about that first. Yet. What? Well, okay, we'll talk about that now. So on August 10th, <laughs> unfortunately, you're going to have to, like, buckle in for this one. Um, I'll find a buckle. Yeah. Usually I say hold on to your tater tots, but I don't think your tater tots are going to be secure at all. Um, I don't have a tater tot. Yeah. I think you, like, tossed them earlier. I, I threw them at the security guard. <laughs> well. I chucked them right at him. I was like... And then I was mad because I was out of tater tots. Yep. This one's going to be a real bumpy ride, though. So are you ready? Because I do you know the end of the story? I mean, I know he's not alive. Okay, so. I know he's unalived. All right. A severed head was found in a drainage canal alongside the Florida Turnpike near Vero Beach. About, oh, I know where that is. Yeah, about 130 miles from Hollywood. Yeah. Florida. Yeah, no, that's really not. It's uh, yeah, Vero Beach is really far away from, yeah, Hollywood. That's not okay at all. Um, it was discovered by also this doesn't shock me, a detective, and an unif- unidentified deputy of Indian River County Sheriff Office. Um, so Indian River County and Saint Lucie County divers searched the canal. And on the morning of August eleventh, John and Rave um, appear on national television saying they still hope that Adam was alive. There was a hundred thousand dollars reward. So in today's money, two hundred eighty one thousand dollars, two hundred twenty three, two hundred eighty one, two hundred twenty three dollars. Wait, I can't do dollars. Okay. It's a lot of money. It's it's pathetic that the the inflation um, is where I'm going with that. 
Um, yes. That was the reward that had been posted for his safe return. So soon after, the recovered remains were identified as Adam's. His death was ruled as asphyxiation. Um, the state of the remains suggested Adam had died several days before the discovery of the head, and the rest of his body was never recovered. Wow. Correct. I'm also now, this is 81? 1981, yes. So this is me being from Florida. Um, I'm like, kind of like, was my grandfather a cop in that area at this time? You would call him up and be like, tell me everything! <laughs> kind of. Uh, well, I don't I don't remember if he was a cop yet, because he was a cop in the Tampa Bay, like... Well, he certainly would know this case. Oh, yeah. No, no, he would. He wouldn't 100% would. This kid would be the same age as my mom uh, if, he, if he were alive to this day. Right. Um, but, you know, I just... Yay, Florida. Uh, but yeah, Florida is trash. Actually. Um, and I feel really bad for this kid. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so I'm going to give you some investigation things. And they're going to be rough. So bumpy ride. This is going to be another situation where do we believe him? Yeah. Um, so John and Rave personally believe that the Hollywood Police Department botched the treatment of Adam's disappearance. First the missing persons investigation, then the investigation into his murder. No one shocked by that. None. Not even a little bit. In fact, yeah. And with the, I think, 40 plus cases I have investigated in my time sitting here, because many of them I have yet to release. Um, yeah, pretty much when it comes to unsolved mysteries, it almost always includes botched police work. Yep. And and I say almost always because so far I haven't found one that hasn't, but wait till it happens. Um, I'll let you know. I haven't ever. Every, I mean, every unsolved case has so much botched police work. I've yet to find one that doesn't have it. And I'll be the podcast that'll say it. Like, okay. Um, so after the investigation, police did conclude that Adam was abducted by a drifter, this man named Otis Toole. I'm kind of... Are you familiar with him? I am not. So he was a drifter. Um, they say that... The police would say that Otis Toole... Um, abducted Adam near the front exterior of Sears that afternoon um, after he left, basically. Now, Tool did confess that he lured Adam into his white 1971 Cadillac. It had a damaged right bumper, and he promised toys and candy, and then drove north on Interstate 95 towards Jacksonville. Yep. I was like, I-95. I know that road. Sorry. I know. Hey, I mean, sometimes geography makes a big difference, though, when it comes to a confess a confession. Yeah, no, and I know I-95. Like, where he was found, Uh, that would, when you said that, I was like, oh, he was probably found off I-95. Yeah. Was my first thought. Uh, so Adam, this according to his confession, Adam was at first 
very compliant, but then more he began to panic more as they drove on. Tool allegedly punched him in the face. This, of course, makes the situation worse. And then Tool would allege to beat him to unconsciousness. So while Adam was unconscious, Tool drove north on the Florida Turnpike to a deserted service road. It's uh, apparently just north of the Radabaugh Road. Radabaugh. Radabaugh. Uh, um, it's an overpass in northwest St. Lucie County. Oh, Port St. Lucie? Uh, the county, St. Lucie County. It's just in the northwest of the county. So it's like a... I don't know if it's in that city. Uh, when Tool allegedly realized Adam was still breathing, he strangled him. And disposed of the body by incinerating it in an old refrigerator. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. He strangled him with a seatbelt, decapitated him with a machete, and incinerated the body in an old refrigerator. Where he got that, I don't know. Um, but he did that when he returned to Jacksonville. So he left the head, took the body. Um, That's... He claimed that he wanted to make Adam his adopted son, but he, Adam had too close of a relationship with his loving parents, so it wasn't exactly feasible. Um, determining the source of blood found in Tool's car was not actually possible at the time, and police ultimately lost the blood-stained carpet from the car the machete that was said to be used to decapitate Adam, and eventually the car itself. So Tool was a confidant of the convicted serial killer, you may have heard of this guy, Henry Lee Lucas, who would repeatedly confess and retract accounts of his involvement. And yes, Henry Lee Lucas is the confession killer. Sorry, I'm laughing because of like, I was like, you're like, you may have heard of this guy. And I'm like, there's like several that went through Florida. Which one? Oh, no, it's not that. It's just this guy <laughs> owned up to so much stuff he did not do. No, I know. I just, it's just my first thought was like. Which one? I don't know which, which killer you're talking about. Also, I did get confirmation. My grandfather was a cop at this time, but he was a cop in a different county. Tragic. So he was not handling. Tragic. Not not handling this particular case. Good, because uh, he would have just been called the fuck out. Yeah. I, <laughs> my, But also, like, props to my grandfather later in life was pretty good about calling. Like, I learned a lot about cops' follies from my grandfather and a lot about how to deal with them because he was like, they're not your friends. Oh, yeah, no. And, like, he was very honest about this. He should do a seminar. <laughs> honestly though probably i mean what's that especially for florida i know right um so just so you know otis tool is never charged in adam's case though he did seemingly provide accurate descriptions as to how he quote committed the crime that's my yeah. that's my newscaster voice <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, I mean, part of it, I was on, I was like, okay, probably did it. And then part of it, I was like, well, you conveniently lost everything that would be the evidence. Okay. Okay. 
Like, I mean, and like, okay, normally that's what you want to do. You don't want evidence going back to you. But if you're confessing. No, he didn't and you lose don't have it. Any... He was in police custody and the police lost it. Oh, the police. Oh, that part I missed. I missed the police losing it. The I apologize. Poli- the police lost They lost an were. entire car. So he, so he could have done it and they lost an entire car. I think it was like, he totally didn't do it. And they were like, oh, look, this car, Chevy, go- or the Cadillac just goes off a cliff. We lost it. We just sent it into the Gulf and helped it start the BP oil spill, even though <laughs> that didn't happen until years later. Um, so several witnesses did place him in Hollywood, Florida, in the days leading up to the disappearance. Um... But, you know, what's that mean? Nothing. That's just circumstantial. I mean, yeah. As always, law and order. It's circumstantial. Bum, bum. Thank you. <laughs> so several witnesses. Oh, wait, I already just sent that. In September of 1996, Tool did die in prison. 49, cirrhosis. He was already serving a life sentence for other crimes. Whatever. After. So if he did do it. He did. It's still not the same. Yep. It's not the same, but it's like, I guess if he did do it, some justice kind of served, I guess. Uh, his niece did tell John Walsh that he made a deathbed confession to Adam's murder, but his confession is viewed as unreliable since Lucas, Henry Lee Lucas, and he, Otis Toole, confessed to or implicated themselves in guess how many different homicides. so many more than 200 what the fuck that's a lot most of uh lucas's confessions are later revealed to have been false or have been coerced by the texas rangers yeah that sounds about right you know i think yeah this all sounds yeah this all sounds like florida uh it's all uh florida my home state is a place where stuff happens a lot. It's actually oh no, hi chopper. All these states have this like a similar level. It's just like Florida doesn't have that law that prevents. Yeah, the... no, we have no privacy laws. Or I, I say we like I've lived in Florida recently. I haven't. Um, we, there's no privacy laws for arrests and things, so you can find out pretty much anything you want. Immediately. Yeah. Um, Whereas, so it, it's it makes Florida seem more wild than Alabama, and I'm pretty sure Alabama's worse. I'm just gonna say. Oh it. yeah, like I joke about Arkansas, but you know our motto isn't "Thank God for Florida," it's "Thank God for Mississippi and Alabama," because <laughs> we know where we Sorry. know where we are on that list. You know, I mean. Florida does have the running, like at least the theme parks are good. So like that saves us. Got Miami Beach. Don't take. Sorry, I am yelling at my dog now. Chopper just wants to to be a part of it. He's trying to steal my clothes. Oh, let him have it. Um, yeah, I don't know why he's doing that. Um, sorry, no dogs. Uh, but yeah, I Florida's so. Yeah, we have Miami Beach. We have. The theme parks, and, girls. and then the rest is steal oranges from the farms because you don't know whose it is, but it's fine. Just steal them. I was going to say it's old okay. people. Oh, yeah, we have a lot of orange groves. Like, a lot. 
Oh yeah. And horses. Orange juice. Lots of I horses. About orange juice. Um, and um, the Devil's Advocate takes place uh, is about a lawyer from Gainesville, Florida. Oh, there's a lot of Florida movies. Um, I just think it's hilarious that the Devil's Son is a lawyer from Gainesville, Florida. Isn't that Keanu Reeves? Because yes, yes, I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm just like. That's literally, they were like, the devil's son would totally grow up in Florida. I'm just throwing down that I would sell my soul to Keanu Reeves. It's no big deal. I think most of us would, but I don't think he'd ask. I don't think he'd ask, but he's happy to have them. (laughs) Uh, So, are you ready for some more allegations? I am. I know you love it. So we have the Hollywood police chief, Rick Stone. That name just gives you a vibe. He says that he conducted an exhaustive review of Adam's case after the release of John Walsh's book, right? John Walsh does not, as far as I'm aware, believe that Otis Toole did commit the the crime, right? And so Stone is a 22-year veteran of the Dallas, Texas, and Wichita, Kansas police departments, and he was appointed Hollywood's chief of police in 1996 so of course the crime happened 16 years before the time of this review and he doesn't have all the evidence that has mysteriously vanished but he provided this analysis right this analysis with reviews of taped interrogations which i mean okay by hollywood police detective mark smith is that a real person that is such an uninteresting name i think i've heard of mark smith and like i don't know bob jones and basic person so this police chief rick stone who sounds like a total sane person says his review found evidence i'd love to see it um beyond a reasonable doubt when did he become a jury that tool murdered adam so both tool and lucas are notorious for confessing to crimes they committed and then recanting. That's kind of not... Mm. Okay. Yeah, if your name is Rick Stone, I automatically don't trust you because you sound like you should be in an 80s buddy cop movie. It sounds like you should be in a bad 80s buddy cop TV show that got canceled after a season. Okay, it's the cop musical. Ah! (laughs) I want a cop's musical. Uh, No, they're... They're really so in the like eighties or nineties there really was a procedural cop show that lasted for like twelve episodes, I think, and it was a procedural cop musical. Look it up. I want I mean, I was thinking Broadway and Spandex, but this is better. It's hilariously bad. Just you should you do yourself a favor, everybody. Look this up. Jesus. Okay, so in two thousand seven, this is where We go from bad to worse. Allegations, somehow widespread, spread publicity, spread, spread. I'm going to say Reddit, but that Jeffrey Dahmer, he was arrested in Wisconsin in 1991. um, He had killed, you know, a dozen men and boys, was also named a suspect in Adam's murder. So Lionel Dahmer. Did you know his dad's name was Lionel? I did not, and that's kind of like... I don't know why that changes things for me, but it does. 
It makes me think of Smallville. That's all it makes me think oh, really? of. I'm like, of course, of course you went evil. Your dad was named Lionel. Lionel. Which is literally like in Smallville, Lionel Luther is the abusive dad of Lex Luthor and a big reason why Lex Luthor is evil on the show. So if your dad's name is Lionel, you're doomed. So I-, I don't know who you are, but that's just the case. So where's Lionel Bezos? Uh, I said it. I don't know yet. I said I it. <laughs> uh, we haven't found evidence of his existence, but I'm sure it's real. Yeah, I know, right? Um, so Lionel Dahmer, the father of Jeffrey Dahmer, he called the America's Most Wanted hotline not too long after Jeffrey Dahmer was arrested. And he said that while his son was never convicted for it, he did believe that Jeffrey Dahmer was a pedophile. He was living in Miami Beach at the time, and two eyewitnesses placed him at the mall on the day that Adam was abducted. That's a really long way for him to go. Yeah, but, like, spring break, yo. And it's the summer. No, I mean, from Miami to Hollywood, Florida. Like, that's not... why. Like, if you're living in Miami, why would you go to that I mall? I have not read it. I don't understand. <laughs> I'm just spatial sorry. awareness in Florida, but that is a very I, good point. I'm just it's it's a point on my end of someone who's lived in Florida and knows that most people won't drive 20 minutes to see you, even though everything is 20 minutes away. No, I totally get it, but at the same time, except it's a little farther. Oh man, it's like living here where it's like everything is three hours away, and I'm not going to come visit you ever. Um, yeah. It's exactly like that. But no, I, I'm also now, okay, so we're in 2007, and this is about where the Casey Anthony case is taking over, which is probably why I don't remember a lot of this. Oh, no, this was totally Loki. Like, this was internet. I was like, why don't I remember this? I was living in Florida. But but also, I was, like, if you didn't watch America's Most Wanted like that, I don't know. Well, it's just the news, the news circuit, especially in Orlando, had really shifted to Casey Anthony and it stayed like that for years. Oh, I know. I have a lot of feelings about it. Years. Um, But one claimed to see a strange man walking into the toy department at the wall, the the Walmart, sorry, the Mall Mart. And... And another said that they saw a young blonde man with protruding a protruding a protruding chin. I hate that word. Throw a struggling child into a blue van and speed off. That's not terrifying. So both witnesses recognized the man they had seen as Dahmer when pictures of him were released in, in the newspapers after his arrest. Natch. Reports show that the delivery shop where he worked had a blue van at the time. Oh, suspicious, suspicious. And he did prey on young men and boys. However, the youngest... This chin is not protruding, though. I don't know. I just work here. I actually don't know what Jeffrey Dahmer looks like. I may have pulled up... He's like a really... I mean, he's like an unassuming white blonde dude with glasses and a mustache. Yeah, it was like the glasses are usually what gets me. Um, but he doesn't. He has like a very, very small chin. Huh. He has like no so chin. So maybe we're looking for that guy instead with the protruding chin. Uh, but he is blonde. You know, he's white. Hmm. Narrowed it down. All of, yep, I have found. Nope. Found it. Figured it Thank out. You, Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, uh, 
But the youngest boy that he preyed on was eight years older than Adam, so like his MO doesn't match actually up. does. It did include severing heads. Oh, true. I think okay. that's why. I was, I was wondering if the ages mattered. I think the ages do matter, but maybe someone was copy, 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 copycatting, copying his MO. I got you. I almost died there. <laughs> <laughs> I could tell. I, I jumped in with the copycats. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on to your tater tots, Beth. My tater tots got. I don't know what happened. They didn't even pop in the <laughs> oven. You threw them at the word protruding. <laughs> um, also, he was interviewed about Adam in 1992, and he repeatedly denied involvement in the crime. And his quote was, I've told you everything. How I killed them, how I cooked them, who I ate. Why wouldn't I tell you if I did someone else? And so after this rumor surfaced, John stated that he had seen no evidence linking Adam's abduction and murder to Jeffrey Dahmer. I agree. Was, okay, let's just, in perspective, was Dahmer, I, I don't think Dahmer did it, but Dahmer wasn't in the news till 10 years later. Correct. So, we had no idea what his MO was in 1981. But why was he interviewed in 1992? Well, he was caught, right? And but he was he was in jail and caught in ninety one, oh, yeah. right? So it can't be a copycat because no one had anything to copycat. I like how it, oh yeah, you like I already knew this information, but I forgot what year it was. <laughs> <laughs> so there's nothing to copycat. So I can understand why, from a cop's perspective, once you've caught the guy ten years later and you now know his mo. You could, I would, I would ask him, you lived in Florida at this time, did you do it? But his answer also makes sense. Like, I told you, I, I told yeah, you what I like, did. Yeah, he's like, I've already done, spilled the beans. Why, why would I so hold like, the bean back? Which, to me, makes yeah, sense. I'm, I'm I mean, between, like, I don't, he's a killer, but he's already in jail for his crimes yeah, at this point. He's a killer that I don't see would hold back. No, 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 no. He, like, because I think he's, it's, I'm trying to think. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think he did this. No, I don't think this was him. Though the MO has similarities, I don't think it matches Dahmer, in my opinion. Yeah, the MO has similarities, but it's, that my main concern was it can't be a copycat because no one knew his MO yet. Mm -hmm. A copycat has to come after publicity. So... We were, the case is left that in December of 2008, the new Hollywood, Florida police chief, Chad Wagner. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I know. I had to. <laughs> they have the worst names. Rick's. Okay, at least go back to Rick Stone. No, His name like is him, better than this guy's. He's a friend of John's and he announced with John present that the case was closed. That an external review of the case had been conducted and the police announced that they were satisfied with Tool as the murderer, Otis Tool. Um, so, as it stands, Otis Tool is the official murderer of Adam Walsh. However, again, just like Aton Pats, the question is, are you sure? So, with Aton Pats, I'm not sure. With this guy, 
I'm not sure. I feel like with Adam Walsh, Otis Tool is likely. Like, I won't, I don't, he's, he's known to lie about things, but if we hadn't lost evidence, I think there's a chance. We could have conclusively confirmed or denied, yeah. Yeah, and I, th- I think, yeah, cops, be better at your jobs. You know what, we're gonna, you know what, it's probably a cop and they lost the evidence so that it wasn't a cop. That's probably what happened. Right. Sorry, I have conspiracy theories over here. Oh no, absolutely. Um. But no, like, I think Otis Tool is likely. Dahmer seems very unlikely. Like, the oh, severed yeah, no, head, I, sure. I actually think Dahmer is a clear and present no. I would say, yeah, I would say no. I, especially because there was no sign of him going to Jacksonville or driving off, uh, driving up the 95. Yeah, all. there's an absence of evidence to well, even he, place him there. Yeah, and if he was going, like, if, okay, sh- okay, sure, you want to get someone from not in the area you live. Dahmer did bring people back to his home. That was a thing. Yeah, but he, so, he's like, not accurately pinpointed at the Hollywood, Florida Mall. Yeah, so where I'm going with this is, if he was doing that, you would have seen him going, the body in the head probably would have been found on a different freeway going back to Miami, not going towards Jacksonville. Right. So... Dahmer is a no. And also, I truly don't think that anyone that's been named is the actual killer. I think it's someone else. I think it's most likely someone else. I just think of the two we have, Otis Tool is more the... More likely. Yeah, like, the more likely of the two. But I am now leaning into my conspiracy that it's a cop. Mm. And um, they lost the evidence intentionally so that they would not get convicted. I like that idea. I also like the idea that um, the cops lost the evidence so they could close the case. Oh, yeah, that's probably that's. Yeah. They do that all the time. Yeah, I know, right? It's terrible. Cops are terrible. Well, there was a television film. <laughs> Um, called Adam that premiered October 10th, 1983, and the film was based on the kidnapping wow, that's... and murder. Um, it attracted that's so soon. 38 million viewers on its first airing. Um, but I think the cool part of it is that each of its three broadcasts in 83, 84, and 85 were followed by pictures and descriptions of missing children. And a hotline had been created to take calls about them. And the pictures in hotline were ultimately credited with finding a number of missing children. 13 of the 55 children shown in the 1983 broadcast were located. And the American rapper Busy Bone, who had been abducted by his stepfather as a child, was reunited with his mother after a neighbor recognized the photo of him shown at the end of the 1983 broadcast. So I'm suspicious of this. Not that part. That's really cool. Um, That means they sold the rights to this. They, The parents, it's a, it's, John and Reve, had to be okay with this. movie. They they had to sell this and be okay with this in 1981, most likely to get that movie finished by 1983. I don't think it's that quality. Like, 
I'm not saying it's quality. I it just th- takes a really long time to make stuff. I don't think it was one of those type of movies. So I think they could have knocked it out in a nine month. But I'm just... That like is... if some organization came to them and said, Hey, we know your son was murdered, but we have this idea to... Use... Well, John is a producer now. No, I know, but like if it like someone came to them and was like, "We can use your story to help locate other missing kids," what do you think? They were. Oh no, I'm kind of thinking John brought it up. I don't think he did. Like, because it seems in his mo here of like, I'm gonna bring this idea and help find missing kids. Um, let's see. So he, I'm kind of just, NBC. I'm curious how this came about. And the executive producers were Alan Landsberg and Joan Barnett. I'm this me. Hi, listeners. Uh, you're hearing about how Hollywood works. <laughs> um, this is a thing. These are things that happen, and you're learning about film schedules. Yeah, it's not like a blockbuster. I like. It looks like a made. No, TV. I like the. I like what happened. I like the goal. I was just thinking about the trauma of the parents. And I was wondering if either John came to them and was like, hey, I want to help find more missing kids by doing this. Or if like they were approached or I'm just thinking about the position that puts John and Reve. I bet in. you they never saw it. Oh, no, but they had to you, you they had to be approached about I it. I think so much of their life went into the media at that point that... Let's see. The writer was. You still have to get the okay from the people, though. I think though. because, like, it was helping. Like, the idea was that it was helping other missing children to not end up like their son. Yeah. I think that's, I just like. feel kind yeah, of bad. No, I totally agree. I think it's, like, a great show of character and strength that they were able to do this. Like, I'm beyond. I don't think I could have done it, you know? But without them having done that, we wouldn't have Bone Thugs in Harmony. I mean, that's also fair. I just, yeah, no, I, 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 I'm glad that it happened. I'm glad what the outcome is. I just think about, this is one of those cases where I'm thinking about the victims and the trauma and how hard it is to get over something like that. And the idea that Hollywood producers, and I'm, because the thing is, they're probably not the only ones who are trying to do oh, this. Man, they got Emmys. Because Hollywood producers. Um... I say this as a Hollywood producer. I know. And I'm looking at their, um, like, Emmy nominations right now, and I'm like, I said this movie was trash. But, no, I don't think it was, like, one of those. It is those poor people probably, they like, they had to live through this and get that again. Like, get people hounding them and asking all these questions and people being like, will you sign paperwork? Will you sign off on this movie? Will you let us do this? Like, that's just hard. And I feel bad for them because it's not it's not easy to deal with that and people wanting to profit off your pain. Definitely. And I have to say, like, they have stayed married this entire time, which you have to admit most most of the time you hear a couple splitting, but they stayed married and had three more children together. So I think perhaps like they were able to come together and. Like, you know, okay, potentially this is, um, you know, 
this is a way to help other people who are like us. Because I know that in the beginning of one of his shows, maybe it's uh, The Hunt, not In Pursuit, um, where he's like, one day I became the f- like the father of a murdered child and I'll always be the father of a murdered child. And that's why he continues to do what he he does. And so, like, I don't know. I I agree with you. I think that's crazy in the way that they had that strength to be able to let that happen. Yeah. No, I, I just, my thought was just like, damn, man, that's, it's hard. It's just hard. I, as I think about how producers are and the kind of thing they, the kind of things they do to get you to sign off. And I just, I'm impressed by them. And the fact that he eventually went into work, work in TV and produce on his own and make things on his own. Like, oh, yeah. And continue this plight and continue to fight for kids who went missing and get, are murdered. Like, dude, dude did a good thing. Yeah. Cool, and dude. And then there's, like, um, since that. So, first off, laws and organizations for missing children. Let's talk about them real quick. In 1984, Congress passed the Missing Children's Assistance Act, which was... Um, part in advocacy of the Walshes and parents of other missing children, it was allowed the formation of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which we all know what that is um, and why it says missing and exploited is because not just children who are missing, but those who are victims of sex trafficking and sex crimes. Um, The NCMEC does handle that as well. Um, also, the Code Adam program, which I mentioned earlier, for helping lost children in department stores, was named in Adam's memory. Uh, they passed the Congress passed the Adam Walsh Child Protection Safety and Safety Act in 2006, and Bush number two signed it into law on July 27th. Um, let's see, John and Rebe did attend the signing ceremony. So basically, it didn't. It also institutes a national database of convicted uh, child molesters and increased the penalties for sexual and violent offenses against children. It also created a RICO cause um, of action for child predators and those who conspire against them. Now there has been backlash against. Um, the national database, right? Yeah. Uh, because conviction, convicted, um, like, sex offenders and child molesters can no longer get along with their life after they've served their sentence, basically. So, that is what it is. It's something that... So, wait, this was... That, if that registry was only a thing when we yes. were kids? Holy cow. This is another one of those, a thing that's been a fact for most of my life and I didn't realize was only a fact for most of my life. Actually. Or like our life. of your life than you think. How old were you in uh, 2006? 2006? I was um, 13? Yeah. So technically you were a preteen. I was a preteen, you're right. But that is... It's weird. It's weird to think of things that you thought were every day and were not that old. Yeah, that is. I'm having one of those moments where I'm like, wait, I thought that was a thing. Uh, but that's a thing that's only 
it, it just recently passed like over half my life yes. or just hit half my life yeah. now and um, a rico cause for of action rico is short for racketeer influence and corrupt organization um so basically racketeering which they're <laughs> we're not really good at actually figuring out what's a racket and what's not um it's using those kind of principles for child predators um, and um, should apply to internet predators as well. And so then we had the Adam Walsh Reauthorization Act of 2016, which allowed the budgetary allotments to continue for the programs that were passed in 2006. Um, and then it incorporated the Survivors Bill of Rights Act of 2016, which was enacted and signed by President Obama on October 7th of 2016. Yeah. Oh, I just remember 2016. That's like last year, right? <laughs> <laughs> I just, uh, I remember, I just remembered that it's 2021 and 2016. Like I just, I just had a flashback in my brain. Fuck. Um, so I'm in danger is basically to sum up the last those all of those years. <laughs> truly. So, in regards to like a societal effect from the 80s to now, like the publicity of Adam's case obviously has stretched and has never been forgotten. Like I mean, we're sitting here talking about it. You knew it. I knew it. I just knew the specifics, and I've now shared them with you. And children will soon learn of it because there is a reason mm-hmm. that we protect children so diligently now than yeah we used to. And there's a reason why we're so skeptical of the 70s. And 80s where people are like, we left our doors unlocked. And I'm like, that's how the Velisca Axe murders happened. Just gonna put that out there. I'm also starting to understand why millennials are the way they are. Oh, yeah. We're paranoid as crap. Oh, yeah. And we should have been. Because, I'm sorry, I'm gonna be the one to say it. Statistically, shit was happening. Uh, yeah, I mean, shit still happens. But it like, wasn't it's, the if people ever... outside the door. No. And that's the part that Stranger Danger was actually hurting children. But this is the case of Stranger yeah. Danger. Um, sorry, we're going to go on a side note. Uh, I did this in Morgan Nick 2, where we talked about Stranger Danger taught children that everybody outside the family unit was a was terrible and horrible and you can't go to them but what happens when the family unit is the one abusing you who can you trust and that's basically the stem of the problem of what many children and the fallout of stranger danger are facing now is that to undo some community bias of it's not everybody is out to get you it's not that it's understanding what these perpetrators are and who is safe to go to. Um, but 
So, sorry, back to the psychological effects of the Adam Walsh case and this panic that surged over stranger abductions. Um, basically, out of proportion. And it's been, it's persistent till now. Um, so, Richard Moran, who is a criminologist for the Mount Holyoke College, is quoted saying the case created a nation of petrified kids and paranoid parents. Kids used to be able to go out and organize a stickball game, and now all playdates and the social lives of children are arranged and controlled by the parents. The fear still lingers today. Early estimates of the NCMEC, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, would state that as many as 20,000 children a year were abducted by strangers and that public service spots relayed the perceived danger. A 1985 Pulitzer Prize expose discussed a numbers gap between the claimed number and other statistics such as that the FBI investigated a total of 67 abductions by total strangers in 1984. By 1988, even as the NCMEC lowered annual estimates of stranger abductions by 80%, early estimates had a life of their own. A 1990 study of children of child abductions found that 99% of them were family-related, in the 15 years between 2000 and 2015, the number of missing children ultimately killed decreased in its own right, attributed partly to the emergence of technologies such as mobile phones that allowed calls for help. So we have, so, okay, that, that was going to be my next question was how we have managed to make it better by not assuming that children who have gone missing are just runaways that's the best way to work on that racial bias um by children being taught spatial awareness by being taught who is safe to go with trust your gut you know this person you're comfortable with them yes you can go like, yes, this person is picking you up after school. Go with them. If that is not your person, do not go with them. Even if you yep. know them. Yep. Um, it's just mindfulness of teaching children not to fear, but be aware. And yep, it's a hard line to walk. And it's something that I think... Um, those who are in child psychology and I think psychology experts now for adults need to work on finding the right terms and finding proper ways to help adults unlearn that fear and relearn ways for us to go through life without that anxiety and instead with that mindfulness of our surroundings i'm sorry but i'm a woman i'll never be comfortable outside at night i'd rather let my dog shit in the house 
Yeah, I uh, I have a yard out front, and even at night, like I just bring my pee pads. Like I have pee pads oh, for yeah. my dogs because I'm like, eh, I don't really want to. I don't want to be out there right now. I'm at a night. retractable, um, and uh, my dog will bite. So like, like if someone startles her, and something, yeah. or if I am like scared, she kind of knows it, even though she's deaf. She'll know that I am scared and will bite someone. And I like. And like retractable leash, go pee, come back, let's go. And if she like poops out there, I'm like, I'll pick it up in the morning. Not today, yeah. Satan. Like it's just not. I don't. I. I mean, I don't think I'll ever feel completely 100% comfortable or not anxious in this world. But I hope that we can do better by kids. I, I hope so too, because I feel that the first step is not teaching victims not to be victimized, but teaching everyone not to be perpetrators. <laughs> yeah i mean there's always gonna be people who do bad things like that's just gonna be the reality but if we can be better about teaching people how to be better and giving people proper access right to tools to be better like i don't i don't i will never ever 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 say mental illness is a factor in being a bad person but like Proper therapy does help people, whether you're mentally ill or not. Like, if you can have access to proper therapy, you can fix a or lot of things. proper medication and understanding of what is happening to you. Yes. And, like, access... And this oh, is... I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I just... I want to stress, like, therapy is good for you whether you're mentally ill or not. Especially in this world right now, like, who's the therapist therapist right now? I don't know how they're dealing, but... I feel like just access to basic needs and there's so much that goes into why someone would commit a crime and what pushes them to that level and why, like the why is there and it's complex. And just because it's a bad thing doesn't mean the complexity behind the bad thing doesn't matter because the other person is a person you know what i mean and if you don't understand why this person got pushed to that point you're just going to continue a cycle of horrible horrible things and so we're finding that sure a homeless person has been capable of doing something terrible why do you think that is maybe it's because they're fucking homeless maybe it's because they need a home you know, fix that. And yeah. Then, it's lack of need. Yeah. Or like lack of your needs being fulfilled. And then we can continue down this path. And I feel like we had this surge of serial killers in the 70s. And fear just brought on after civil rights passed. And... I feel like right now we're in a huge transition and I don't want to say we're going to go through something else again. I don't know. I am no person to make um, assumptions or any sort of generalization like that. But I think that if we are to learn from mistakes of our past and to take care of one another in the best way possible that this is the time to really lean into our mistakes, understand where we went wrong and 
how do we build a better community between ourselves instead of exploding as we have in the past, if that makes sense. And that does mean taking care of our children and taking care of not just children, but also elderly people who don't have full range of motion, who don't have all of the the things they need. And that means taking care of the homeless. How can we make this community like successful and prevent these types of crimes, prevent these types of desperation? So yeah, that's yeah. my soapbox. I agree. <laughs> I know. I, Just make the world a better place already, people. It's not oh, hard. It's very hard because you know sometimes you just want to slap a bitch, and that bitch is yourself. That could make the world yeah, better. That bitch is myself. I don't know. Um, but basically, that's that's my thought on this: is that the milk cartons did come from a good place, and they had no other way to reach individuals and now we have ways of reaching individuals the amber alert as we mentioned it's not as effective as it could be and we get weighed down with bureaucracy to figure out an effective way there's too many cooks in that kitchen and we never seem to land on something that really does sort of solve an issue if that makes sense yeah i mean a big part of solutions and problem solving is like you have to do something first and it's probably not going to work at first and we're just going to have to keep improving it and it sucks that it applies to everything including missing children yeah definitely but no step is a worse step in my opinion no, there's, I mean, you'd have to do some pretty dumb stuff for that to be the case. But in this case, like any step we start taking is going to be the right mm-hmm. step. Uh, but also we need to focus a lot more on kids of color. Oh, definitely. And and native kids, which still falls under kids of color. But like, come on, America. Oh, terribly. I mean, get it together. There is the NamUs Project, and then there's the Charlie Project. So NamUs is um, finding names to unidentified remains. There's um, the Charlie Project. It's uh, missing people who may or may not have like disappeared because, let's say, they had a catatonic episode and went full amnesia, you know? Or they match someone in NamUs. Um, So another podcast I listened to, and we're wrapping up here, don't worry, uh, is called Jed Match. Oh, wait, no, the podcast I listened to is Murder Squad, and they encourage people that if they have gotten their DNA test done to submit it to Jed Match. And so what Jed Match does is basically let you take your DNA results, um, and let them be allowed to um, be used by NamUs and et cetera for all of these people who have been unidentified. You may be genetically linked to them and they may be able to figure out who they are 
based on your DNA. Um, I can't say that I have submitted mine. I haven't made that decision. But if you have had it done, Murder Squad talks about it and talks about how it is extremely helpful for missing um, cases to be solved with remains finally having a name. So if you're interested, look it up. I don't have a link for you because I'll just let you know Jedmatch does start with a guh. Um, I would say Gedmatch because that's a G. Um, it's just like yes, GIF. It is GIF. If you say GIF, you're if you say GIF, you're Fight dead me. to me. I mean, it's a GIF. hill I'll die on. It's There's GIF. a lot of hills I'll die on just because you know I'm a millennial, but whatever. <laughs> My other one is that y'all is spelled Y apostrophe A L L, and if you spell it, if you spell it Y A apostrophe, I'm coming after you. Just don't you don't know how contractions work. Like you didn't? Did you miss that day? I did you not grow up in the South? I have well, questions. You know I mean? Like you're not apostrophizing the word all. You're apostrophizing the word you. So it goes after the yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So <laughs> sorry. This is a that is like Twitter was like, what's something that feels like a personal attack against you but isn't? And yeah, that's that my does. thing. Like I just that hate one, it. That one is a big one for me. Um, as an also southerner, deeply. Um. <laughs> so, with all of that information given to you, check out Jed Match. If you decide to do it, let me know how the process is. And you can hit us up on Twitter at TalkAboutFacts, T-A-L-K-A-B-T-F-A-C-T-S. That's also our Instagram handle. And also, if you want to give us a suggestion for a story to cover, you can email us at ltatfpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth Fury, and with me today has been... Blythe! The Gay Disaster. You know, I love uh, it. You can find me on Twitters and Instagrams under BlytheCollin93. That's B-L-Y-T-H-E-K-A-L-A-9-3. Dun, dun, dun. And we are so pleased to have spent these two hours with you. I know we covered three stories and more. So much more. But we'd love to hear what you have to say. If you have ideas or opinions on the cases or changes that could be made into the missing person system. Um, ironically, last week we talked about the Australian missing person system. I ha- still have questions, Australia. Let me know. Uh, we will see you again next week for something spooky. Hopefully. Ooh. Bye-bye.